in the Distinguished Lecture Series of the James Martin 21st Century School. I'm Ian Golden, I'm the director of the school, and it really is a great privilege and pleasure to introduce this evening uh, not only one, but two great people. Craig Venter has been at the forefront of really pushing, and pushing very fast and in very different ways, the frontiers of the very makeup of humanity. And uh, it is for us a tremendous honor to have him here this evening, to be able to help us think through one of the big challenges and a whole set of issues that emerge from it uh, that we'll be confronting over the coming years. I'm also delighted that he is a member of the advisory council of the 21st Century School, along with uh, Lord, now he became a Lord on Friday, I think, uh, Stern, who was the author of the Climate Change Report and did our first lecture in the previous term, who's also a member of our advisory council. Greg Venter is a man of great distinction in many areas, and Lord May, uh, in fact, Baron May of Oxford, appropriately, will introduce him. But I do want to highlight that today is the launch of his new book, his autobiography, uh, and uh, that's what has in fact brought him to Britain, and Blackwell's Over the Road will be open after this, uh, extra late today, with signed copies of his book if you'd like to purchase them, and I'm sure he'll inspire you to do so. I'd also like to thank the Oxford Trust, uh, who together with Penguin have supported this evening. Oxford Trust is an organization in Oxford that aims to bring scientific and other thought to the community, and they've been very helpful uh, in helping ensure that this is indeed a public event. Now Lord May, who will introduce uh, Craig, is someone who's known to many of us. He's an absolutely eminent scientist in his own field, uh, which is zoology. Uh, prior to that, he was in fact the professor of mathematics uh, at Harvard and a professor of physics uh, at Sydney, and he's been a professor of zoology at Princeton and at Oxford. He uh, has many, many achievements to his name and has been the chief scientist of the British government. He's also an author of many books. And he's someone who in Oxford has, I think, done more than anyone that I can think of, of bringing these issues of where we are going uh, and bringing the science of biology and zoology to us as an academic community uh, and more widely to the community of the world. So it's with great pleasure that I introduce Baron May. It's often remarked that the 21st century is the century of the life sciences. We describe the uh, molecular sequences of genomes and begin to decode the book of life. And I immediately add, that so that uh, I don't irk the physical scientists in the audience, to say we do this very largely with instruments and with advanced understanding of complex nonlinear systems that come from the physical sciences. Perhaps less widely remarked is the fact that so many of the central figures in this enterprise, from the early days of Francis Crick and Jim Watson through to tonight's speaker, are larger-than-life characters. And I am going to make no attempt to uh, outline a CV for Craig Venter. I'll just give you two snapshots. He came center stage in 1998. And at that time, the USA and the UK and some other countries were making steady progress towards cloning DNA, mapping clones, sequencing them, and using the maps to assemble genomes. And they were doing that roughly two-thirds in the States, one-third here, bits of it other places, um, with public money, NIH money, Department of Energy money in the States, and mainly welcome money here. At this point, Craig Venter announced that he was forming a private company, Celera, that was going to go faster and cheaper and use a really rather revolutionary idea of chopping things up into much smaller pieces, shotgun approach, and then use clever mathematics to put them together. And that caused immense uh, agitation in the community, a mixture of disbelief, fear, and general unease. Disbelief, because many people felt you couldn't do this. It was just too complicated to use this, putting it in little bits and put it back together again. Fear, 
lest governments say, well, now he's going to do it. Uh, we don't need to give you money to be doing it. And more general unease that the sequence of the human genome should be done with private money and owned by a private company. And Craig was very helpful. They had a big meeting to come together, and he said, well, look, why not? I'll sequence the human genome, and you can sequence the mouse, which I think is a good characterization of his approach to many of these uh, things. My own acquaintance with him is a subsequent event, and because what? His, the, his entry into the field, the primary effect it had was simply to speed things up with healthy competition and new ideas. Not without controversy, and there are still those who uh, seem to me to think of him as, uh, as it were, Lord Voldemort's cousin. <laughs> On the 26th of June, 2000, two years after his entry into the field, the first draft of the human genome was announced um, in a joint ceremony by President Clinton and Tony Blair. Uh, it was video uh, connected across the Pacific, and it was a wonderful, if nothing else, example of two cultures. And I giving him a gratuitous advertisement for the book. And the book captures it absolutely brilliantly. In number 10, Blair was there with a bunch of people sitting in front of him, sort of people from the Genome Project, all very informal, until finally the link was established and then Blair stood somewhat more formally at the uh, podium, while the rest of the audience gazed in giggling disbelief at the American version, which was Clinton flanked by Craig Venter on one side and Francis Collins on the other, and with people carrying flags intermingled with them, as it were, and Marshall, as it were, hail the chief music, and everybody stood and reverently applauded. And the contrast between this almost quasi-religious ceremony, which ended up with some of the speeches in being overtly religious, uh, is captured brilliantly in the book. It was anticipated, it was preceded earlier, um, in specifically on... Um, a date which I can't remember, but is the, uh, doesn't matter, <laughs> by a joint announcement by Blair and Clinton, which had been put together with the thought that the basic information about the genome must be regarded clearly as discovery, not invention, and thus the common property of humanity just the same way as a new species discovered would be, while at the same time by saying that, clarifying the ownership of things that were inventions, like the clever software to look for patterns in the sequence, or for that matter, products you developed by understanding what a particular gene did. And so, and I take particular satisfaction in this because I actually wrote this, uh, this declaration said, in the last decade of the 20th century, scientists from around the world initiated one of the most significant scientific projects of all time to determine the DNA sequence of the entire human genome, the human genetic blueprint. Progressing ahead of schedule, and that's his fault, <laughs> that's largely his doing, human genome research is rapidly advancing our understanding of the causes of human disease and will serve as the foundation for development of a new generation of effective treatments, preventions, and cures. To realize the full promise of this research, raw fundamental data on the human genome, including the human DNA sequence and its variations, should be made freely available to scientists everywhere. Unencumbered access to this information will promote discoveries that will reduce the burden of disease, improve health around the world, and enhance the quality of life for all humankind, and intellectual property protection for gene-based inventions will also play an important part in stimulating the development of important new healthcare products. And my colleague as chief scientist in the States, uh, subsequently in the event of the perverse unintended consequence of this, said, we want to make people's lives better, and this statement lays out principles we think will do that. Perversely, at that time, the biotech, NASDAQ, and other markets were grossly overpriced, waiting for correction, and the effect of that thing within the next two days was to wipe six billion off Celera and around half a trillion off the biotech market, which to my mind is one of the most extraordinary perverse and unintended consequences of anything, particularly perverse because it clarifies 
It, it should have strengthened the market. It clarifies what people can own and what people can't own, and it has helped by changing the question in the states as to whether you could possibly assert as intellectual property ownership these uh, just describing things. You would have then, as we progress and learn what you can do with them, it means the people who do it will own it and can profit from it, instead of loads of lawyers streaming in and asserting ownership of bits of it. And there we are. Craig moved cheerfully on, moaning the loss of his upgrade in a yacht, but he is still, on the other hand, a thoroughly seagoing person doing interesting and original things, which you can read about also in his book. In conclusion, I would just say, I personally am very happy to confess that I think Craig is a good thing, not only as an exciting and creative scientist, but also as a helpful counterexample to those who think science is boring. It's often portrayed as a sort of nerdy, passionless enterprise. Too often that's how you encounter it in school. That's how you see it in trivial science questions on quizzes. We need to convey to younger people that science really is what science is really like. It's controversial, adventurous, buccaneering, and no one is a better exemplar. And I quote in conclusion, somebody wrote a very nice book review of his book, which uh, ended with the following paragraph, which also underlined that not everybody agrees with uh, my view. And he's, he speaks of Chagath, who was one of the characters of the early days of gene splicing. And he said, Chagath called the heroes of the double helix, and not with approval, a new kind of scientist, one that could hardly have been thought of before science became a mass occupation, subject to and forming part of all the vulgarities of the communications media. Four decades on, our infinitely more vulgar media has called Venter many things, maverick, genius, manic, risk-taker, brash, controversial, genius, publicity hound, rebellious, visionary, audacious, arrogant, feisty, determined, provocative. His autobiography shows that all are justified. <laughs> In my lexicon, of those 14 uh, epithets, Eight are very positive, three depend on how you interpret them, and three are perhaps bad. But I think risk-taker, controversial, genius, visionary, audacious, feisty, determined, provocative. Craig gets a good score. We need more, perhaps not too many more, we need more like him. Thank you, Bob, and, and I also have two things to, to thank him for. Uh, he is responsible for making me a millionaire. Uh, I started out a billionaire, and uh, <laughs> uh, and and, uh, and I lost it all. Uh, and the other thing I have to thank him for, as I, I told him earlier, I, I was absolutely certain it was going to be some foolish thing I said that crashed the stock market, and I was so much more pleased it was Clinton and Blair with, with his help that did it. Uh, so that I don't take the full blame. Well, it's a delight to be here, and I uh, appreciate uh, uh, Ian, you hosting me, and uh, that uh, it's this wonderful setting that people uh, can only enjoy uh, having the chance to speak in. So I'll give you a little bit of a, a run-through of how we got to where we are and maybe where we're going. Um, a lot of people think of genomics as a technology-driven field. And while it in part is, I argue that it's a uh, philosophically driven field, a mathematically driven field, perhaps if not much, if not more, uh, than the technology. So in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, my team at NIH developed this EST method, the rapid means of gene discovery based on randomness, just randomly selecting cDNA clones out of a brain library and sequencing them. 
And it certainly changed the course of my life. I'd spent the previous decade working on the adrenaline receptor, trying to get enough protein uh, to get a little bit of sequence. In fact, I just saw uh, today in nature that the uh, adrenaline receptor has finally been crystallized. So progress is, is slower in some fields, but it's actually delighted to, to, to see it move to that stage. The only way to get the sequence, in fact, was to go to the DNA. So I retrained myself as a molecular biologist uh, and went in that direction. But getting thousands of genes a day was a little bit better than one per decade. Uh, we had, over several years, hundreds of thousands of these cDNA sequences. And we set out to try and understand them. Part of it was building new mathematical tools to assemble the sequences together. It, it may be hard to imagine, but the best algorithms at the end of the 1990s, uh, the 1980s, uh, could only deal with a thousand sequences. That's what everybody thought was sort of the limit of the technology. In fact, why when people started into genomics, they thought the problem had to be divided into hundreds of thousands of small projects, all on the order of 30 uh, kilobases, because that was the limits of what could be done. We decided with these new mathematical tools to try and experiment uh, in 1994. Uh, Ham Smith and I actually wrote a grant and submitted it to NIH, saying we, we thought of this new way to do sequencing. We have some mathematical and computer tools that we think will make it work. Um, but we were a little bit skeptical we would get funding. Um, the government funding doesn't usually like new ideas, um, but they, they fund them w once they get going. So we decided to go ahead and do the experiment. Uh, four months later, we had completed uh, the genome of Haemophilus influenzae. Uh, the other two genomes that were being funded at the time on a global basis were the E. coli genome, which actually took a total of 13 years to do, and the yeast genome, uh, which took 1,000 scientists 10 years to do in these distributed projects taking small clones. We decided just to treat the whole thing as a simple uh, puzzle, shattered the DNA into tiny pieces, sequence those, and then use the computer to solve the jigsaw puzzle uh, instead of monks distributed around the globe. At the time, it seemed like an overwhelming thing to have 25,000 sequences and to mathematically assemble those together and get a genome back. Uh, these numbers now seem tiny on today's scale, and we could do this same project uh, approximately a dozen times a day. Uh, at the time, we had to do on the order of 10 to the 8th pairwise comparisons, uh, which wasn't a big deal and certainly could be done now on my laptop. Uh, but we scaled up from there. Uh, once we demonstrated to the government that these techniques work, uh, they gave us more money than we wanted, uh, basically to sequence most major human pathogens, uh, scaling up then to do uh, malaria, uh, working on into plants. And then in 1998, uh, as you heard from uh, Bob May with the start of Solera, we scaled up even more. We knew these techniques worked, the mathematical solutions we're, in, we're actually capable of more than anybody imagined. Uh, and we did upset the world uh, uh, with our announcement uh, and also set out to do a test project, uh, the Drosophila genome. You can see the scale is now different. We went from 1.8 million letters of the genetic code to 180 million. Uh, and due to the new technology we had with new sequencing machines from uh, my sponsor, which was trying to sell more instruments, uh, we now did three million sequences in a matter of four months, the same as Haemophilus, but we needed a much bigger computer. So we actually set out, we had to build the third largest computer in the world. Uh, it's kind of sad today's standards. Uh, it was 1.5 teraops. Uh, that would be like the, the uh, number two or three hundredth largest computer today uh, and would cost a tiny fraction of what we spent doing it. But everybody thought doing even 10 to the 12th pairwise comparisons would be too much uh, for the computers at the time. Uh, we were absolutely amazed that the computational effort worked, put together the genome extremely well, and at that moment we knew human was just a matter of doing it. Uh, and a short time later we scaled up 
over a nine-month period to do 27 million sequences. Uh, this was now 10 to the 14th pairwise comparisons. This actually took a while to do, and, and for this event at the White House uh, that you've heard about, it was uh, becoming very problematic because presidents don't sit around and wait for calculations to be done. Uh, they wanted to set a date and asked me uh, when I thought it would be done. I, I put in a margin of error, but the problem was uh, using these advanced alpha chips at the time, they were truly at the bleeding edge of computing and they would crash several times a day. Um, so it came down the day before the announcement when the assembly uh, was uh, completed. Uh, but fortunately, uh, we were able to do that. And short while later, uh, in 2001, we published our version in Science in the Public Consortium uh, in Nature. Now, not much has happened since that time in humans. Uh, the zoologists uh, in the room will uh, be happy that the U.S. government has gone into zoology instead of humans. Uh, it's quite stunning, actually, seven years later, uh, that we could publish uh, the first diploid genome uh, with not much happening in between. This was actually important and, and very different from what we had in 2000 and 2001. At Celera, we sequenced the genome from five individuals, including uh, myself. Uh, it was three women and two men uh, of ethnic diversity, including uh, Chinese, Hispanic, African American, and uh, Caucasian. Uh, but with the assembly, it was a, a consensus assembly that in fact subtracted out a lot of the variation to get to that consensus. So it was clearly a flawed uh, project in terms of explaining humanity. The public sequences, in fact, was just a haploid sequence. In fact, it was a haploid sequence derived from single clones of DNA from, uh, in theory, up to 270 individuals. And so there was very little variation that showed up there. And people assumed because it was going to be three to five billion dollars to get half, we would have to get by with half. And probably the other half wasn't all that different. But in fact, we found it was quite different. The assumptions out of 2001 is we all shared the exact same set of genes. And human differences were due to tiny point mutations in some of those genes. It didn't make any sense at the time, but there wasn't much we could do uh, without getting new data. So we've gone on to do now a complete uh, diploid genome from one individual. Uh, it happened to be me because we had more sequences already uh, done and it was cheaper to add on to that genome. But we found we now differ from each other on the order of one to two percent. Maybe with the extremes of human variation, it could be as high as three percent. A short while ago, almost anybody in this field, including myself, were showing slides that we differed from chimpanzees only by 1.27%. So you're probably curious whether that number has changed. Um, if, if not, it's certainly problematic uh, <laughs> for the evolutionary biologists in the room. We're more like 5 to 6% different from chimps, not 1.27%. Those numbers were derived when you align areas uh, that are common that do align, uh, they don't differ by very much from each other. Uh, but the overall structure, the indels, the differences in the genome are really quite substantial. This was just published in uh, the, the PLOS Biology Journal, uh, Public Access Journal, uh, and all the sequences uh, came out uh, at the same time. In terms of understanding this variation, we found that 44% uh, of my 23,000 or so genes have uh, a heterozygous variant in it. And some of these were uh, major indels, changes. In fact, we don't all have the same sets of genes. Uh, for example, there's one gene associated with detoxifying environmental toxins. Could play possibly an important role in cancer. A third of Caucasians have no copies of that gene whatsoever. Uh, I actually happen to be a heterozygote. One of the sets of chromosomes I inherited from one parent had the gene, the other one uh, did not. We're trying to understand these kinds of variations in the genome when we see, in fact, different insertions or deletions on the two different copies of the gene when they exist on chromosomes to understand 
the range of biology that presents. If you go to the PLOS biology website, you'll find uh, uh, this a map of the genome that you can zoom in. You can actually download it. It's uh, on the order of uh, 300 uh, megabytes to download it. Uh, but you can zoom in at any level, and it shows the degree of variation uh, across the genome. Uh, and uh, we have a browser that will be going up uh, soon on a website that you can get down to the sequence level to understand uh, genetic variation uh, down to the level of the sequence and the insertions and deletions. Seventy-five percent of the base pairs that are variant in my genome are not in SNPs, the single nucleotide polymorphisms that everybody's been setting up to measure as the differences in humanities. Uh, they're in insertions and deletions and a variety of other types of mutations. Having one genome uh, is helpful to some extent if it's yours. Uh, I spent a lot of time with my team trying to interpret the genetic code. Everybody thought this race to get the sequence was such a great thing. I argued it was a race to the starting line, and we're barely crawling across the starting line now. It's very, very difficult right now to interpret the genetic code. There's thousands and thousands of papers in the scientific literature uh, that are virtually useless looking at point mutations and trying to work out uh, whether they have a 1 to 2 percent effect on disease. It's clear that we have to look across the genome. We're scaling up to do 10,000 human genomes uh, over the next decade as these costs come down substantially. Think about all the questions that we have about nature versus nurture. Uh, if we have appropriate phenotypic information along with this sequence, I think we can go a long way to answering uh, some of those questions. Some of the insertion and deletions are in things like the zinc finger protein where uh, one copy uh, has a lot more uh, DNA binding domains. There were some parts that we found, including uh, this gene change, that didn't occur in GenBank and any other genes that had been sequenced uh, in humans, uh, but we found a great deal of matches in chimpanzee. So uh, we're trying to follow those up to see if uh, th there's something unusual about my ancestry. Uh, <laughs> that, that uh, might make people more comfortable about me after all. Uh, when we look at the genetic code, we started with a naive assumption that we could define the genetic code, a minimal operating system that would define life. Uh, it was frighteningly naive when we looked at, in fact, we cannot do that, and I'll get into that more in a minute. The environment is the equal partner to the genetic code, uh, and I'll give you some very clear examples. So after sequencing the human genome and the mouse and the rat and the Anopheles mosquito that carries malaria uh, all over the next uh, 12 months after human, uh, it also helped to be fired uh, from Solaris. I was looking for something else to do, um, and we thought applying these techniques to the environment was probably the most important application we could do. Uh, I have argued that there's little point in trying to cure cancer if we don't make some pretty radical changes pretty soon in what we're doing with carbon utilization on this planet. Uh, I will show you a slide in a few minutes that it is changing rapidly. Uh, we did a trial experiment on the Sargasso Sea of shotgun sequencing the sar parts of the Sargasso Sea. We chose it, and the Sargasso Sea is around Bermuda, uh, one of the former colonies, um, that people said there's very little biology in the Sargasso Sea because there are no nutrients. So it would be a great place to test shotgun sequencing uh, because there's so few organisms it should work very well. In fact, we were stunned when even just a, a barrel of seawater, we discovered as many as 40,000 previously unseen organisms, and we stopped sequencing after about a billion base pairs and the discovery of a little more than a million uh, new uh, genes. We decided, based on, in fact, uh, historical trips, uh, primarily the Challenger expedition uh, that left uh, the UK in the 1870s, to measure whether there was life on the bottom of the sea and get the composition of the ocean around the world, 
that we would do a similar thing and measure uh, the invisible world using our new tools of DNA sequencing. Earlier this year, again in a public access uh, journal of biology, uh, we published uh, the first results from the Sorcerer 2 expedition uh, and in a single paper described six million new genes that had not been seen before and putting those in the public databases more than doubled the number of known uh, genes thus far on the planet. It was very hard duty. This is our uh, research vessel, the Sorcerer 2. Uh, again, thanks to Bob May, we had to put up with a 95-foot boat instead of a 130-footer. Uh, but uh, we, we managed to struggle uh, through. Uh, this is the route we followed as with the uh, Challenger expedition starting in Halifax. Uh, we went down the east coast of the U.S. Uh, through the Caribbean Sea, through the Panama Canal, and first to Cocos Island in Costa Rica and then to the Galapagos. And the PLOS special issue covers that data. Uh, the first thing we discovered is that it's very difficult to do science in this world uh, and that most parts of the oceans are owned by somebody. Well, Bob May mentioned owning sequences is a challenge. Uh, I'm much more concerned with who owns all of life on this planet. Uh, and it's very hard to find areas that you can go and do science without being arrested. I was arrested twice on the expedition. Uh, once when I sailed into the Marquesia Islands uh, from the Galapagos. Uh, and as microorganisms and fish and everything else in the ocean moving in this roughly three quarters of a knot current move in uh, to 200 miles of French Polynesia, they switch from being international organisms uh, to French genetic heritage. Uh, and uh, this is true around the world. It doesn't all become French genetic heritage. Uh, uh, it would if it could, I'm sure, but uh, uh, it gets owned or claimed uh, by one or more uh, uh, countries. In the Caribbean Sea, uh, after we publish the data from the Sargasso Sea, uh, countries decided that defending their barrels of seawater was extremely important. Uh, and they would do so with gunboat diplomacy. Uh, and we were not able to sample in areas where uh, these territories were disputed or we couldn't get permission from the countries to take a barrel of seawater. Uh, Darwin would not be able to do any of the discoveries that he did uh, today without uh, being arrested and thrown in jail or, or, or worse at the time. Now, our protocols were very simple. We just filter a seawater uh, through three micron filters, everything that goes through that through a 0.8, then through a 0.1 micron filter where we collect most of the bacteria in archaea. Uh, everything that goes through that we collect uh, as a viral faction with a cutoff of uh, 50 kilodaltons. It's very simple. We just fold up these filters and put them in the freezer. When we reach uh, a port uh, with an airport in FedEx, we would ship them back to the uh, lab in Rockville, Maryland, where we had very high throughput uh, DNA sequencing, uh, a term that's uh, in definition of what high throughput is changing almost daily uh, today. Uh, we had 100 uh, there of the ABI uh, sequencers, uh, and we would just literally shatter all the organisms apart uh, make shotgun sequencing libraries and sequence everything on the filter uh, and then trying to sort it out. These are actually the sample sites. Uh, they were open ocean. They were from the Gulf Stream, uh, that important uh, warm uh, stream that keeps this island out of the ice ages uh, that is in danger of being disrupted if too much more carbon goes into the atmosphere uh, extensively around the Galapagos Islands. We certainly had the pleasure and the privilege uh, that very few do uh, since Darwin's time of, of spending months there on our own vessel uh, traveling around uh, and, and sampling. The biggest surprise to all of us was 85% of the sequences were unique every 200 miles. Uh, most of us and even oceanographers started with naive assumption everything was everywhere and the oceans are a giant homogeneous soup. 
Uh, they're anything but homogeneous, and they differ even from one ocean to another. Only 3% of the sequences assemble across uh, one or more sites. Uh, they clearly segregate the, the red or the dark is the warm water. That's the Gulf Stream uh, going over in this direction. Uh, the blue is cold. There was a totally separation of organisms in the warm versus the cold water. In fact, just from sequence identity, uh, given a sample of seawater, we can make a pretty good determination of where in the world uh, that came from. This becomes very important when you think of some of the dangerous experiments that are done every day in the shipping industry. A super tanker uh, takes on hundreds of thousands of gallons of ballast water with every milliliter of that having uh, a million bacteria and archaea and 10 million viruses. Uh, they'll go across the ocean to another port, dump out that seawater to take on uh, oil. So just think of this giant ecological experiment we've been doing irrationally for decades and decades and decades, uh, increasing the volume. Uh, but it's, it's interesting, with, with some rare exceptions, maybe because we haven't been able to measure it, obviously things like zebra mussels appeared in, uh, in the Great Lakes causing tremendous damage. We don't know what all these viral and, and bacterial exchanges do to ecologies, but maybe the circumstances that lead to these unique microenvironments are so selective uh, that it doesn't change these environments. Uh, we, these are questions we can now begin to ask. I think one of the most important discoveries we found uh, that in fact explains why there was so much biodiversity in this desert of the Sargasso Sea is almost every organism we found had a photoreceptor-like molecule uh, very similar to our visual pigments. So the blue at the bottom was the world's knowledge of visual pigments, including the human ones. We had roughly 110 of them or so that were known. We now have tens of thousands of these. So instead of being a rare gene family, they're one of the largest on the planet. Uh, and you can see tremendous diversity uh, with these branching uh, red lines. It creates new challenges for protein chemistry in terms of trying to do multi-protein alignments of thousands of related proteins. But there's good reasons to do it in trying to characterize some of these because a single amino acid uh, change changed the wavelength of light that these photoreceptors see. Because each one of these sequences is tagged with the GPS coordinates of where it derived from, we can ask unique questions. Do you find differences geographically in photoreceptors? And, and we do in the most fascinating fashion. In the middle of the Sargasso Sea, where it's a deep indigo blue, the photoreceptors see primarily blue light. You get into coastal waters where there's a lot of uh, chlorophyll, they see primarily green light. In places, fresh water like the Panama Canal, they see most entirely green light. But we also have a number of new derivatives, and we don't know the wavelengths of light uh, that they see. But this is pretty fascinating as a selectable, uh, as a selection tool for these organisms. A single base pair change in the genetic code can change the organism uh, from seeing blue to green light. Uh, that must be a tremendous selection advantage uh, to get their energy uh, from the sun depending on that wavelength of light. There was a recent paper in Nature uh, from a Swedish group, in fact, showing that these organisms depend on light for their growth. This is not photosynthesis. These are like the adrenaline receptor, other seven transmembrane neurotransmitter receptors uh, that uh, switch from light to electrical signal across the cell uh, that provide energy for these cells in the absence of other uh, nutrients. The other thing that we found, and this is a new graphical tool uh, that the, the team developed, that in fact takes any genome sequence or assembly uh, and you can compare all the sequence reads to it. So that each of these tiny bars is about 900 base pairs of DNA sequence. Unlike the view of microbiology from getting isolates in the lab, 
the environment, in fact, doesn't look anything like that. We have a broad distribution, you can see, of related things between 90 and 100 percent. Then we get this range of uh, organisms that are about 80 percent, uh, 90 percent sequence identical to the reference uh, sequence. These are color-coded by site, uh, so these are uh, a set that were found just below the thermocline in the uh, Galapagos Islands off of Fernandina Island. And then we see this broad range of sequences with other strains. Basically, every one of these have the same 16S RNA sequence. So those of you who were measuring diversity and thinking you were measuring diversity on the planet by looking at 16S RNA, uh, you would have said all this diversity is just a, a single organism. Uh, it's much more widespread. Because each sequence, these are random, and randomness works in our favor again, each sequence gives us 1.4 genes on average. Uh, so we know the neighboring gene for each one of these, and we can work out that gene order across all these different organisms is largely identical but we're dealing with 40 to 50% sequence difference. Uh, some people have argued the definition of a species should be based on 10% sequence difference, which makes us the same species as rats and mice and dogs and cats, uh, which makes sense in Washington currently, but uh, <laughs> pro probably not any place else. So we, we don't have a way to even describe this diversity in existing terms. Uh, other than uh, that they're, they're unique uh, sequence entities. SAR-11 was supposed to be a single organism in the Sargasso Sea. Uh, we have more sequences hitting that than any other uh, single sequence, but you can see it's across the range of diversity. But you can use these to ask interesting questions. We can take any slice out of this data set and build trees and you can compare them by site to see if there's any similarity. We can ask questions, are they in the Atlantic versus the Pacific? And if you've seen the GOS papers, you know, for example, there's major differences in phosphate metabolism in the Atlantic organisms versus the Pacific or Ocean. Uh, but I think the bottom is the most fascinating. It says this switch from blue to green light, that one base pair change has happened at least four four different times in a recent evolution. It's not unrealistic, given the selection power, just the wavelength of light determines whether you live in that environment, uh, that with single base pair mutations, you could get that kind of variation. You can ask basically any question of this type of... But other questions that have come up, uh, what's the real novelty added by this data? Uh, we already knew about uh, rhodopsin-like molecules, and now we just have a large number of variants of those. Uh, are we discovering new gene families? What's the rate of discovery? Do we, as my thesis committee members told me at the beginning of the 1970s, we know most of biology, so it was going to be difficult for me to make any new discoveries in my career. Uh, are we close to saturation? Uh, we go through these bottlenecks. Uh, in 1969, uh, the U.S. Surgeon General announced that we had won the war against microbes, and microbiology began to get uh, diminished around the world in terms of funding. Well, we, we did an assembly, so the global ocean sampling data uh, turned out to be uh, almost twice the size of all the public database uh, data that we could get from uh, the public databases and any website around the world. It took a million CPU hours to do an assembly of all this data together, uh, asking questions like, how many major gene families do we have thus far on our planet? And the number came out around 40 to 50,000. Uh, I told you earlier, we only have 23,000 genes. We probably only have about 12,000 different major gene families so we don't occupy a lot of this curve. But any sample we take out of the environment anywhere in the world adds new gene families on in a linear fashion. The smaller circle in this Venn diagram uh, was GenBank, uh, a random sampling of just the ocean environment. We hit every gene family in GenBank except for 115. 
uh, yet we had close to 4,000 new major gene families, those with 50 or more. These curves have extremely long tails. If we count those, we probably had 100,000 new gene families. Until we get more data to add on, we don't know uh, for sure. This is just a reminder, even though I don't think evolutionary trees really work, uh, that we are in a, uh, a distant uh, group. And so we can ask different sub-questions of these data sets. Is mammalian gene discovery saturated? And in fact, it has saturated. A any new mammal that we sequence, we will not likely discover new genes. We will discover new variants, uh, new combinations of those in genomes. But if we look at a gene-centric world, uh, as Richard Dawkins uh, has had us do in the past, uh, we can say, here's our set of mammal genes, mammalian genes. Uh, we can design new mammals from that, maybe, but uh, uh, there's no other ones out there. In contrast, what we're looking at in the environment with archaea and bacteria, uh, not to mention uh, the entire eukaryotic world, uh, we are in a linear phase of discovery. Any sample, you could go out to any body of water, any soil sample, the air here, and you will find new gene families uh, in a, a linear rate of discovery. Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Gordon Moore's one of the founders of Intel, has been funding a lot of our uh, ocean uh, work. Uh, wanted to help put the data in some sort of context with the history of microbiology. So he funded us to sequence 160 genomes from isolates that researchers had in their labs around the world, trying to make a correlation between the pasture-type biology of what grew in the lab versus how it was represented in the environment. So this was the extent researchers around the world have provided organisms for this. Uh, most of the sequencing uh, was done. When we compare it to the environmental samples, some of these are so rare out on the tail of uh, diversity that they don't hit much at all on the collection of data. Uh, a few of them, uh, like SAR-11, uh, absorb uh, uh, many sequences. So it's not clear any isolate in the lab represents anything from the environment except being a portion of that long tail but it's clear we have a long way to go to understand the diversity on this planet. We're generating a huge amount of new data. Uh, GenBank and the public databases have been growing exponentially, uh, and they're not very useful for things beyond just a sequence archive. Uh, so Gordon Moore gave us a $25 million grant along with UCSD to start the camera database which is a unique community resource that any of you can log on and get access to, that in fact, in addition to having all the data, uh, has a, a large, massively parallel computer that you can log on and use online uh, to do analyses on this data. That there's very few institutions around the world that have computers large enough to even do some of the simple analyses. As I mentioned, every uh, sequence is tagged uh, with a GPS coordinate, and uh, there's a Google map that will bring up uh, where those sequences are from. These governments around the world uh, uh, that claim ownership of all these sequences like this because it can prove that it was, in fact, their sequence. Uh, the Australian government, uh, we, we have people here going to uh, Australia soon, uh, that uh, they were happy with us publishing the data in uh, the open literature and the public domain, as long as we put a tag on all the sequences saying uh, they are the property of Australia. Uh, and if you want to do commercial in, uh, investment with those, you, you have to contract uh, the Australian uh, government. More importantly, we can add other metadata, meta including uh, the satellite images uh, from the days of the samples where we can get a lot more information, the chemistry that was done at the sites, and now what we're doing is uh, lining up uh, where we take the sequence samples with a number of other oceanographic uh, expeditions. Let me close with what we can start to do with these uh, genes. Uh, we now are approaching uh, 20 million genes, so this I can't even keep up with my own slides. I like to view genes as the design components of the future. Uh, it wasn't just the writings of, of, of Richard that's influenced me. 
It's just seeing those data, I've developed an absolute gene-centric view of the world, not a genome-centric view. Genomes are just interesting different packages of the same sets of tools, and we can use these uh, as we design new approaches uh, to life. Now, when we sequenced the first genome in 1995, we actually sequenced the second one that year that turns out to be the smallest genome, uh, Mycoplasma genitalium, of a self-replicating organism. This only has about 560 genes. And we simply ask the question of if one uh, cell needs 1,800 genes, another 560, is there a minimal set of genes uh, for an operating system for life? Having two genomes, the first comparative genome studies were done, uh, and they had something in common. Uh, but these authors actually concluded uh, the gene complement of the planet must be extremely small, uh, that there was this degree of overlap. We could have concluded the same thing, but I'm, I'm glad we didn't publish it, because as soon as we sequenced the third genome, the first archaea, we would have realized how wrong uh, we were. We started doing transposon mutagenesis. Transposons are small pieces of DNA that insert randomly in the genetic code. When you all get your genome sequenced over the next few years, you will find about a third of your genetic code are transposons. When they insert in a gene, they can disrupt the function. In fact, there's a lot of human diseases from recent insertions of transposons into genes, knocking them out. These are a negative experiment. If the transposon goes into an essential gene, the cell dies and we don't see it. If it goes into a non-essential gene, we can select living cells. Because we have the genome sequence, we can sequence off the transposon and know down to the base pair where they inserted. Even though we can generate a cumulative map like this, you only do one gene at a time uh, because that's all they're selectable markers for. So even though we could knock out over 100 uh, genes one at a time, uh, it didn't seem likely that we could probably knock out all 100 of those and still have a living cell. Here's a metabolic map of the cell. Here's all the pathways where we can knock out genes one at a time. In fact, this is when we found out the environment uh, is of equal importance uh, to the genetic code. Uh, the simplest example I can give is this cell will grow on two different sugars, glucose and fructose. And there's a gene for a transporter for each sugar. So if you have both sugars in the environment and you knock out the glucose transporter gene, the cell lives quite happily and you would score that as a non-essential gene. However, if you only have glucose in the environment, you knock out the glucose transporter gene, the cell dies, and therefore you would score that as an essential gene. Uh, we don't know how many other pathways where there's these conditional uh, non-essentialities or essentialities, how many other pathways uh, can substitute for each other. Out of the minimal set that we can describe of around three to 400 genes, at least 100 are of unknown function. So that's the state of our knowledge of biology right now. The smallest bacterial cell that self-replicates in the in culture in the lab, and we don't know uh, what at least 20% of its genes do. All we know is if you remove that gene, the cell dies. So we set out to try and answer these questions. We decided the only way to do it was to build a synthetic chromosome. Uh, I won't take you through the whole history of this, but uh, uh, making oligonucleotides has a long, long history uh, not a short history. In fact, it's getting easier all the time, uh, but there's still about a, a 10 to the fifth difference between the rate that we can read the genetic code and digitize it versus the rate that we can write it. Uh, the other problem we found is uh, DNA synthesis is a degenerate process. The longer the oligonucleotide you make, the more errors it gets. Uh, and after a year and a half long uh, ethical review, before we did the first experiments, we tried just making oligonucleotides from Phi X174, putting them together and copying them with polymerase. We got molecules the right size, but even with selection from infectivity, we didn't get one that produced viral particles. So we went back to the drawing board, and my uh, good friends and colleagues, Ham Smith and Clyde Hutchinson, uh, developed some unique methods for error correction and synthesis. 
so we could go from the digital world of uh, sequence in the computer to designing uh, oligonucleotides to making now this analog molecule of DNA that we can now take this piece of DNA that was accurately made and put it in E. coli. This whole process took us only uh, two weeks. What was exciting is that E. coli took up the DNA and started making viral particles with it. They were sorry they did because after they did, the virus started killing the E. coli, and that's why you see these clear uh, plaques on the plate. But I argue this is a case where the software builds its own hardware. So we've been digitizing biology. Now we can go from the digital world to the analog world of biology uh, and basically have software that will build hardware around it. So we've been working trying to make the artificial bacterial chromosome, and we're doing this in cassettes the size of Phi X so that we can mix and match, leave set, gene sets out, put gene sets in. We don't even know fundamentals about genomics. Is gene order important? What if we have all the genes in there, but we just scramble the order? Do we still get a living uh, cell? In 1995, the state of the art of uh, sequence accuracy was one error per 10,000 nucleotides. Part of the digitization uh, of biology world, uh, if the digitization is not accurate, you won't be able to design and build things accurately. Uh, we resequenced the genome, found that we had about 30 errors uh, with what we did a decade ago. Uh, and now we know uh, it's exactly right. We've designed cassettes uh, to build this chromosome. We've started with pieces that were 80 base pairs. We built Phi X pieces around 5 KB, and then we sequentially have been building these into larger and larger pieces. There were two problems. One is making chemically a big DNA molecule, and DNA is very brittle. Any of the lab techniques that some of you might use won't work for keeping chromosomes intact, so we had to develop all new techniques. But the big question to me is, how do you boot up a chromosome? Uh, and that was the big challenge. It's easy to put these pieces together relatively uh, by standard procedures, uh, but also the fundamental question was, how do you build the whole chromosome from the small pieces? And the answer was homologous recombination. It was actually much easier after four years of trying than we imagined. Uh, and we've been working on this with an organism called Dinococcus radiodurans. Uh, this has been referred to as the Conan barbarian of uh, biology. It can take three million rads of radiation and not be killed. Uh, I don't recommend you try that experiment at home. Uh, humans can only take a tiny fraction of that. Its chromosomes get blown apart with a couple hundred double-stranded breaks. In 12 to 24 hours, it repairs its DNA and rebuilds the chromosome exactly as it was before. So here's what it looks like. Here's after 1.75 million rads of radiation. Here's 24 hours later. So this is the biological equivalent of our algorithms that we assemble uh, genomes with. Uh, and now we can, uh, moving into combinatorial genomics, we're trying to build a robot that could make 1,000 to a million chromosomes a day uh, so we can do these experiments. Well, what about booting up the chromosome? That's what we just published with the paper on genome transplantation. And I think this is the most important paper to us because it really enables everything else we're doing. The challenge was taking a chromosome, putting it in a bacterial cell. Uh, it's not simple like nuclear transplantation where you just cut out the nucleus and substitute another one. Uh, that's technically easy. Bacteria and archaea don't have a nucleus. The chromosome's part of the cell cytoplasma. We thought maybe we would make ghost cells by irradiating the chromosome, uh, chemical uh, uh, toxins, but we ultimately settled just to leave the cells intact uh, and add uh, the new uh, chromosome. Our experiments that we published were two mycoplasma species uh, that are roughly as close as human and mice uh, to each other. We added some things to the chromosome that we were going to transplant in. Uh, we added a selectable marker, and we uh, added uh, something to give the cells a blue phenotype. But we went to great lengths to make sure it was just the naked DNA. We added uh, proteinases to chew up all the protein, because if this was going to be a prototype of synthesizing DNA in the lab, we couldn't have an accessory protein that was required for this. Uh, the experiments 
we had one or two outcomes that we expected. One that we can, the chromosomes would just go into daughter cells, and then with antibiotic selection, uh, we would end up with just the cells with the new chromosome. It could have also uh, come up with chimeric cells with both chromosomes. What we think happened is actually far more interesting, and it makes you appreciate why cells would develop uh, restriction enzymes as uh, an evolutionary tool. The chromosome in the cell that we're transplanting into does not contain any restriction enzymes. The chromosome that we were transplanting in does have a restriction enzyme. As soon as we put in the DNA, we think this got expressed, uh, and now the restriction enzyme recognized the parent chromosome as foreign and chewed it up, leaving just the new transplanted chromosome in the cell. Uh, so this is pretty exciting because understanding these restriction mechanisms give us some clever molecular biology tools for doing this with different cells. But it was truly stunning. Every characteristic of the species we started with disappeared, and the species became the new species dictated by the chromosome we put in. All the proteins changed over to those in the new chromosome. The membrane changed, the membrane antigens changed. So this is the ultimate in identity theft. And you can see why uh, in evolution, uh, if you were a happy little bacterial cell, you didn't want somebody to come and stick their chromosome in you uh, and take over your identity. So you develop restriction enzymes uh, to try and chew uh, those up. Here's a picture of the cells. Uh, they're uh, bright blue as well. Uh, so I think we, we've started down the route where we can do this, and now we're trying to do this with our synthetic chromosome. Despite what you've read in some newspapers, we have not yet achieved this, uh, but we now know for sure that it's totally uh, doable. This is going to be a field that's limited mostly by our imaginations. Uh, our imaginations at uh, my institute can come up with some pretty good things of going, as with uh, some of the archaea, uh, with their source of carbon is CO2. They make their cellular energy by converting the CO2 into methane, but you can make biopolymers, sugars, or anything else, and there's good reasons to try and do this. Uh, as we go from six to nine billion people over the next 40 years, and we greatly increase this already phenomenal number of 29 billion barrels of oil to some uh, unknown number. Uh, this is the slide that constantly changes. The slide started out a year ago at 3.1 billion tons of carbon going into the atmosphere, mostly from fossil fuels, to 3.5 to now uh, the number is 4.1. Uh, the concern is it may be changing faster than anybody predicted. Uh, which is not encouraging. Uh, there's a chance that we will get to a critical level, uh, and the Gulf Stream has stopped in the past, but not while humans lived on this planet. Uh, the Gulf Stream is important for keeping much of Europe, but certainly this island out of the ice ages. Uh, we are threatening to do a Russian roulette kind of experiment with our planet that even though I from sunlight into hydrogen production with some new oxygen insensitive hydrogenases that we found. We're working on a variety of new cellulases. There's tens of thousands of these in the environment uh, that have been barely uh, tapped yet to provide cellulosic uh, sugar. Algae uh, outstrip everything in terms of the calculations uh, for living material uh, to produce uh, large amounts of potential energy. There's now algae that, from photosynthesis, have half of their mass uh, as lipids. Uh, if you want to be uh, the savior of the, uh, uh, of the planet, come up with some algae that secrete that lipid into droplets so it can be continuously harvested, uh, and we will have a ready source of fuel uh, from the sun. We have not even considered energy crops in any kind of selection that's gone into food crops uh, for the last uh, centuries. So I think the future uses of synthetic and engineered species obviously will help us understand the basis of life. Uh, I'm optimistic we will replace the petrochemical industry, and the sooner the better. Companies like DuPont are already switching. They were totally based on using oil as their raw material. They're now switching to sugar. 
they're making propane diol from sugar with an engineered E. coli. Uh, bioremediation experiments underway in the Department of Energy. I'm hoping a major source of energy, if we can replace taking carbon out of the ground and burning it and putting it in the atmosphere, perhaps just using simple methanogens that convert CO2 into methane. As we sequester CO2, if we can recycle that into methane, uh, that will be useful. And I think to counteract uh, new emerging infections, we have drug-resistant Staph aureus now killing more people this year in the U.S. than HIV. Uh, we have constantly new emerging infectious agents, and as we go from six to nine billion people, those will come even faster. Uh, this, this is my last slide, but not the least important. I think this is one of the few times where the ethical review took place before the first experiments. Uh, the review group published its results in science in 1999 uh, and thought we should proceed with what we were doing. Uh, we've just published a study along with MIT with funding from the Sloan Foundation uh, looking at laboratory practices, biological warfare threat issues, etc. It's easy, as has been done for the last 30 years of molecular biology, to have organisms that don't survive outside the lab uh, this should be a standard in this field. It's an area of ongoing public discussion. It's an area of exciting steps in science. I think if we or somebody else in the near future has the first organism that's booted up from a synthetic chromosome, it will change conceptually at least our view of the potential of life. Thank you very much.